Some weeks back, I had Dan Pink on this podcast, and Dan was advising all of us on looking backward and embracing our regrets and analyzing them to live better forward. In a lot of ways, this week's guest, Michael Hebb, is doing the same, but from another angle. Michael, author of the Tour de Force book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, is advising all of us to look at and acknowledge our mortality because in so doing, we can, yeah, live better forward. Have you thought about death lately? Well, for many different reasons across many listeners, subcultures, cultures, the answer is probably, for many of us, yes. But have you talked about death lately? Or even more to the point, ever? And if not, what kind of costs may be mounting, including perhaps most compellingly to me, the opportunity cost of not living our best life? So yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about death over dinner, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. And investing is a word that I've invested with much meaning over the years. I've often said, well, investing, if you look at the Latin, is actually about putting on the clothes of. Uh, a lot of people think of it as, I don't know, something akin to transacting in and out with stock market trades. But as I've often said, if you're doing that, you're probably trading, not necessarily investing. So those of us of a more patient bent who try to buy, buy, and buy again, and maybe not sell too often, if at all, that's what feels most of all like investing to me. But we also invest so much in ourselves. We invest so much of ourselves into others and into, well, life at large. But one-third of this podcast will always be about investing. I've often said one-third is about business and succeeding professionally. And then the last third is about capital L, life. And sometimes, if you're going to talk about life, it's probably a good idea to talk about death. I was having a conversation with my friend Nancy Waymack talking about doing this topic, this podcast. And she said, well, you know, April is the month of taxes, but what are the two human certainties? And I thought about it and I realized, oh yeah, she means death and taxes. So I think there's already been enough tax talk in my life this month. Let's talk about death. And I realized for some of you, that's a little bit uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable conversation, like one we've had once or twice before on this podcast, and I'm sure we'll do in future as well. But when you confront the most important things, sometimes you will face a little bit of discomfort. Well, Death is not exactly a topic many of us want to spend too much time on or dwell on. But indeed, as I think this week's author will persuade, I hope you certainly has persuaded me, it's very valuable to have this conversation. And so one of the things I try to do on this podcast is exemplify good behavior and get to acquaint you with some of the best people I know across some of the most important subjects. And I think Michael Hebb is one example this week. I want to pay a quick debt of gratitude. The way I first read and ended up loving the book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, came from a listener suggestion. Longtime fool, active correspondent on Twitter and other places, Jason Moore in British Columbia, at Jiminy Jillikers on Twitter, 
a year or two ago, he put up a list of five books he'd really enjoyed. Somebody asked for book recommendations, and I saw one on that list that caught my eye. The title was Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. Seemed compelling to me, and so I bought it, read it, loved it, and wanted to share it out with you ever since. So thank you again, Jason Moore, for being the reason in some senses that this podcast is even happening. And you know, sometimes I think about the math of what we're doing together each week. I think about you, my dear listener, wherever you are, and I multiply you times the number of insights that a given podcast might harbor. And then I think about the depth or importance of those insights. It's one thing to come up with a new stock pick. I've done that a lot in the past. I've enjoyed doing that, certainly. I think it's an entirely different, I'm going to even say more important thing, to focus on some of life's most important topics. And I really think the math of this podcast means that a lot of us worldwide are going to have our lives ever so slightly, maybe more than that, improved as a consequence of this week's podcast. You know, one of the things I've always taken most professional interest in are innovative breakthroughs. I love to find things or invent things that represent real innovation. And somewhat ironically, the idea that you would discuss death is pretty innovative at this place and time in the United States of America in the year 2022. And I think Michael will be helping us towards some breakthroughs this week, both within your own self, within your family and conversations. And yes, this even touches into financial planning. I'm sure we'll go there briefly. Also, I want to mention there is a surprise at the end of this week's podcast. I think we have a special treat at the end. But without further ado, let me welcome the author of Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, Michael Hebb. Thanks for having me here. Well, before there was Michael Hebb, the author, there was Michael Hebb, the little boy. And Michael, could you provide some of the background to your childhood? Maybe connect that in with how one day you would wind up writing a book called Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. The first one that comes to mind, which I don't always share, but has been coming up more and more, I think because of COVID, um, people are having, in many cases, their first real encounter with death. And we're certainly having our first encounter with death at a collective level. Um, in in this generation. There have been Mm -hmm. other generations and generations that are still alive. But the majority of people alive um, have not had such a large collective experience um, of death. And for many people, it is their first encounter. And so one of the questions that we ask um, in the work that I do is, when is the first time you realized, the first time you realized you were going to die? And for a lot of people, that's you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, some people, it's 50s, quite frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't think about it. Um, And for me, it was actually, it was very, very young. I was four years old. And it was an afternoon in autumn, um, in fall. And I remember the quality of the light, um, because it had that kind of long, crisp shadow. And there was a little chill in the air. And I was in outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, and the leaves were changing and all of the classic signs of fall. And I was standing outside alone in the kind of waning sunlight. And I had this very clear realization. I exist, but at some point I won't. <laughs> Which the more I talk to people, <laughs> the more I realize that that's pretty unique realization for a four-year-old. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable. Was there was there anything that triggered that or catalyzed that? 
No, I mean, one could add and project onto it, like the fact that leaves were dying and things like that, or some sort of, you know, very poetic um, understanding. And I, I actually don't know where the realization came from, but it did wash over me. And it wasn't terror. It was a kind of like um, almost a secondary part of me witnessing it and just being okay with it. It was like, oh, that's that's how this works. I'm in this body, but at some point I won't be. Um, and, you know, it was a four-year-old's brain. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot to pull from um, to put it into context, but it was just this knowing. And so that, you know, that was one of the origins of this work. I'd say that that comes to somebody so early in their life as an indication of some of the work you might do. Um, with the rest of your life. And thank you for sharing that, Michael. And I'm not sure I do remember that from the book, but I sure do remember an experience that you had as a boy with an older father and how that has to have um, only further played in. Quite a remarkable background to just your parents. Yeah. Well, my father was actually born in 1904. And um, since the, your viewers can't see me, um, I'm not 85. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm 46. And the quick math of that, um, I'll, I'll reveal for you, um, is that my father was 72 when I was born. Mm. Um, and um, he was born in 1904 in a, um, in a gold mining shed in the Yukon Territory. But we won't go down that long <laughs> path. Wow. <laughs> but nonetheless, yes, I had a, um, a very old father that everybody assumed was my grandfather. Um, he was in great health and had a kind of like Paul Newman sort of quality about him. Um, and just a really vital, extraordinary human being. But he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was in second grade. Um, and the signs clearly were happening before that. Um, and that was a complete and utter disruption of everything that I knew. Mm. Um, and he was shortly thereafter institutionalized after a, um, quite a bit of um, personal drama and a lot of anger on his part, a lot of confusion. And then he died um, when I was 13. And what I saw happen or what I really experienced happening um, and is really set the groundwork for death over dinner um, was how I, how you shouldn't do it. My, my mother was doing her best. She had two young kids um, and, but was under-resourced and didn't know how to talk about my father's terminal diagnosis, his declining cogn- you know, cognizant abilities, um, the, the, just the grief of a loss of a father while he was still alive, well, still alive, and the grief after he died. Um, and so we didn't talk about it. Um, we didn't talk about it, and so it ended up being almost like a secret at the center of our lives. And that secret really, um, I, I would say, had the impact of fracturing and exploding um, our family structure in, in a very real way. When you say we didn't talk about it, for how long did you not talk about it? Well, I would say that the efforts at conversation were always very adjacent. It wasn't a let's come together and talk about our feelings. Let's come together and talk about the facts. 
let's come together and create an open and safe space to just have an emotional exchange or um, to, to even talk about what's next. Um, all, all of it happened in a kind of blur and without a lot of deep connection. Um, and there, there is such a tremendous opportunity for connection when somebody has a terminal diagnosis, when they have a life-limiting diagnosis. Um, and there is a tremendous opportunity for connection when someone dies. Um, it is one of the things that brings us together. Um, and now if we're not having open conversations and feeling emotionally safe, that bringing together that death naturally does or diagnosis naturally um, creates doesn't feel good. It becomes traumatic as opposed to an opportunity for further growth, um, further connection, deepening um, relationships. And so I really feel like I experienced, you know, uh, it's on a continuum, but on, yeah. on, on the bad side um, of of lack of communication and lack of connection. It took me about seven years till post-death, um, my father's death, for me to even start grieving him um, in, in my early 20s. And and, and that's, I think, a fairly common experience for men is not having the safe emotional space to grieve properly. Um, and for all of us, really, in this culture that is so death-denying. Michael, how much do you connect that that background and the avoidance of talking about something so important? How much do you connect those experiences with the idea that you would one day write a book entitled Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner? Well, you know, I had to put it on the shelf for a while. <laughs> I had to, you know, you don't really want to talk to a 20-year-old about death. <laughs> you, know? Mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, and a 20-year-old wants to focus on living. Um, and, a, and a 25-year-old and a 30-year-old. You're building up your identity, not thinking about how, what it might be like to dissolve it a little bit. Um, True to that. <laughs> so um, I, I, I went about living for a long time, and that, that experience sat in me and grew in me. Um, and I got very interested in difficult conversations um, at a very young age um, because I think when I was 13, I realized that people weren't talking about the important stuff. I wanted to talk about the hard stuff. And then I started hosting dinner parties all over the world to talk about the hardest things we face as humans. So there was a long gestation period and 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 then it it really came back to me all in a all in an instant that death was where I wanted to focus. You know, the finance guy in me connected hugely early in the book with your assertions that in not discussing death, we're imposing a huge cost on ourselves and our society. Would you explain more? Yeah. Um, I mean, I like to call it the costliest conversation we're not having. Um, There are strong statistics, and I won't go through them here, but they're in the book and and they're widely available. Um, But the impact of -of end-of-life expense... um, the last two years of our life and the lives of our loved ones um, is is almost immeasurable financially. It's hard to factor in all of the externalities and it's hard to put a price tag on the difference between not talking about it and talking about it. Um, but it's, but, but there's an extreme gulf um, and, and end of life healthcare expenses are 
related to the number one cause of bankruptcy, um, number one cause of bankruptcy being healthcare expense, the, the largest amount of those expenses being during the last two years of life. And there is, you know, very convincing um, research that has been done that open conversations about how we want to be treated, um, how we want to be cared for, the type of treatments we want, not over-treating because we're, mm. you know, manically wanting to save somebody or heroically wanting to save somebody. Um, and if we haven't had the conversation with our loved one who is like, no, no, I don't want CPR at the end. Um, I want a DNR. And maybe not all people do, but a lot of people haven't identified some of those basic wishes with their loved ones. Um, a, a health proxy hasn't been identified in order to make those decisions. And the default is always um, an extreme amount of care and an extreme amount of expensive and costly um, care. So that's, that's on the, the last two years of life. Um, the reality, and you're, a, you know, in the financial space, planning is always smart when it comes to money. And so if we plan for what we want our last chapter and what we want to have happen to our assets um, and to our, our things and our legacy after we die, there's huge financial upside for a variety of reasons. But if we're focusing on um, the more tragic side of this is when people don't have wills um, or when there's, they haven't communicated those wills and their wishes to their families so that they set the stage for infighting. Um, and, and that's expensive. Um, mm. And, you know, I mean, we think about like Aretha Franklin didn't have a will um, or had like various unfinished wills in different places. Prince didn't have a you know, a will, you know, that like there's just these tragic things that happen for high net um, individuals, um, but absolutely for people all the way along the spectrum. Um, if we haven't made the decisions, put it in writing and then communicated it. And the communication is clear part of it. That's often, it's not just signing a document. It's actually preparing your family and letting them know so that there's the lack there's a less likelihood of a legal fight or just derision. Um, so the, those are the financial sides. There's obviously human emotional costs when it comes to not having these conversations. And it all counts. And I did. Uh, you did a, a great job just reminding many of us listening to you right now of the importance, not just of financial planning, but whole life planning and legacy planning. And you know, I I I, I recognize the financial costs, the implications, even something as simple as, well, Gramps never said what he wanted, so we decided to get him the best casket and the best this or that and you know, just just the costs right there. But there is beyond financial costs, the human costs. And in particular, Michael, and I'm not of this industry, so I needed the empathy through your eyes as the author here, but healthcare professionals, the pressure that we put on them as a consequence as you cogently convey, we put we're putting a huge responsibility and burden on doctors to give us the big, sometimes bad news. And in many cases, they haven't been trained to do this. Yeah, well, in in almost all cases, they haven't been trained. Um, I, I don't, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, but it used to be that only eight percent of um, medical schools had any training whatsoever within their curriculum around end-of-life conversations. Um, now, obviously, the rise of palliative care 
the rise of hospice has certainly helped. Um, and and mm-hmm. there's so many people doing great work in this space. But this is something you need to learn early and that you need to readdress frequently if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse. Um, and, and there really aren't great, there still aren't great options um, if you're a healthcare practitioner to pause mid, mid-practice and learn how to have these, you know, um, goals of care conversations. We put a lot of euphemisms on them too. Palliative care, goals of care, advanced care. And for me, it doesn't really do people the great honor of talking about what we're talking about. We're talking about how you want to die or how you want your last chapter to be. Um, and, and people, most people like straight talk. They want an opportunity to have straight talk with somebody who is an expert. Um, and if the expert's uncomfortable um, with the straight talk, you know, you've created a situation where nobody wins. Um, mm. And there's, there's a lot of moral injury that happens um, all the way around. And, the 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 idea or the um, instance which is all too common that you bring up about the grandfather's casket. Now, you know, we will overcompensate if we don't have information in an emotional state like this when we're at a mm. funeral home where we're making these type of decisions, and that's the financial cost. There's but there's a huge mental well-being cost and and an emotional cost. When the person that we love has died, hasn't told us how to honor them. Now, if they tell us how to honor them, we now have something meaningful to do. They've given us a place to occupy, a thing to do that we can feel certain about. And it actually, having that information and then honoring a person, even knowing what song to play at their funeral, Hmm. Um, or what kind of gathering they'd want, or what kind of charities they want to give to. These seem like logistical, financial, or just like detail-oriented things. They're actually deeply psycho-spiritual. We get to do something meaningful during the overwhelming environment that we're in called grief. And that is priceless to be able to say like this is what they wanted and i'm going to do it and we know when people know those things from our loved ones they grieve less um you know less intensely and for a less extended period of time and we're just starting to understand the profound impact of grief on productivity on mental well-being on so many so many things so you know there is a real incentive (laughs) to to have these conversations um, in, in so many ways. And it takes us outside of ourselves. It connects us. I'm going to quote you because I enjoy quoting authors back to themselves. <laughs> Page 11, Michael, you wrote this. I loved it. That's why I'm quoting you back. Quote, from where I sit, the writing is on the wall. It's time to face the inevitable. We need a grassroots movement. We need to face our mortality as a village, not as isolated individuals. Funerals law offices and hospitals shouldn't be the only places we confront the passing of loved ones. The proper depth of this conversation can't happen when you feel intimidated, overwhelmed, and sad. It happens when you feel comfortable and are not staring down a crisis, end quote. There are a number of things I could point to in that. Um, For example, that concept of this is a movement, 
And that's interesting on its own. And if you want to speak to that, please feel free to do so. But I was especially caught up thinking about how, yeah, death tends to live in funerals, law offices, and hospitals. But if in a non-pressure situation, let's say over dinner, which we'll talk about a little bit later, um, if we have an opportunity to process and connect more than anything, I just love how it takes us out of our sample size of one, out of our own selves, and helps in a human way connect us with others, especially loved ones. And you point, Michael, to the importance of knowing if possible, from mom or dad, what she or he does want, how, what a gift that is to us and how empowering it is. Anyway, I love the it takes a village feeling. Well, death is not a medical act. Um, it, it has nothing to do with medicine. It's the end of medicine. Um, it's when we stop treating um, because there's nothing left to treat, right? Um but we've medicalized it. We think of it as a medical event. The reality is death is a community event. It always has been. Um, it's almost like the, in some ways, like the, the same, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit, the dinner table. Um, it brings us together. Um, it's, it's like a magnet. Um, and the reality, you know, think of somebody's deathbed or a funeral. These are things, these are forces that are much greater than us that bring us all together as a community. Um, and, all, and we bring all of our, you know, dysfunction and <laughs> trauma and, you know, yeah. and love and, um, and, and, and depth to these things. Um, and so they're scary and they're confronting. But we, we made the very um, um, kind of, and I have compassion for it. I, like we get a technology, you know, we made the wrong decision, um, but we, we get a technology like medical intervention and we suddenly see the opportunity to apply it everywhere. And there's certain ways and certain places where you don't want to apply the incredible technology of medicine. Um, and that, and, and the, the realm of death is that it's almost, I think of it a bit in the same way I think of what we've done with our food system. We industrialized our food system. We separated ourselves from it. We destroyed our soil. We took the nutrition out of the, the food itself. Um, we created a clean, mass-produced, sterile, um, quote-unquote, hmm. sterile food system um, that was an economy, not an experience, um, not a human experience. And that's the same thing we try to do with death um and and what you do when you medicalize it professionalize it and you isolate people and you make them talk about these things in rarefied isolated places like the ones Mm. you mentioned um then you're taking the nutritious quality of the experience the nutrients that we need from the experience to be able to make sense of the experience and our lives Um, so there's a that industrialization and medicalization has had a huge impact. Um, and, and now when you look at all of the grassroots work being done around hospice and chaplains um, and palliative care and death doulas and death cafes and death dinners, that's a reclaiming. That's a back to the land movement um, in a very Stuart brand sort of way of saying like, we over-industrialize our lives. We need the whole earth catalog um, of death and dying because we need to reclaim it as what it is, a human experience. It's not a medical experience. 
What a felicitous metaphor. I, I love that, thank you. And thank you for making that connection. I, I hear you. Let's, let's talk about the book. So we're going to talk more about the dinner part later, but Michael, you structured the book not so much into traditional chapters, but instead around what you call prompts. These are questions that you use to, to open up conversations. There's a, a wide variety of them. I found every single one of them compelling in your book, but a couple examples for those not familiar. Here's one. If you had only 30 days left to live, how would you spend them? Your last day? Your last hour? That's one. Another? If you could extend your life, how many years would you add? 20? 50? 100? Forever? When did it come to you, Michael, have to structure around prompts instead of chapters? Yeah, well, I've been very suspicious of books <laughs> for a long time. Um, so I wanted to be a writer um, and because I felt so much when I was 13, 14, 15, 16. Um, and I read so much. And literature um, and my um, foray into Eastern mysticism and Eastern spirituality at a young age kind of really fueled this deep passion for what books could accomplish. Um, and, and they used to accomplish really amazing things. A book, a single book could change the culture. Um, and then I started to realize um, that, that books don't have as much impact as they used to. Um, they're just not read as widely. There's not a big enough public for a book um, for it to really shift the whole consciousness in the same way that it used to. And I, you hmm. know, and I, and I was like, well, I don't, I'm not going to spend my time on a book if, if something can have a bigger impact. And so I, I turned to the table and I turned to this scalable model of dinners that we're going to talk about because it's deeply participatory. Um, and the idea that people having a engaged interactive experience um, can be, um, can enact more change than just reading a kind of static book. So I, there's a kind of skepticism that I went about writing this book with. Um, and cause I, I really value where I put my energy and time. And I was like, I want to make sure that whoever picks up this book, um, can be impacted by it. However, if that's five people, if that's a million people, whatever it is, how can I make sure that it, it causes a, 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 a deep or, or even not deep, but just some level of inquiry into their own thoughts, beliefs, fears, um, hopes, their own relationship to, to death, to their own mortality. So how can it kind of jump off the page into your life? Um, and, and that's really, you know, death over dinner, this, this movement, this, um, this platform that we're going to discuss, um, was about that kind of provocation. Um, the first title for it and the long title of, of, um, death over dinner is let's have dinner and talk about death. And, and that's an invitation. Um, people start, when you hear that, you start thinking about it and it's, (laughs) it's in you. (laughs) You've, you've almost like already, you know, ingested the seed that is going to flower into something. And I, I was thinking about chapters and I, 
learned so many stories. There are so many stories on the cutting room floor um, after the thousands and thousands of conversations I had. But I was like, how can how can this book give people the tools, start a a type of self inquiry immediately, um, and and really start to change dynamics in their life? Because if you ask the questions that are in this book to the people that matter most to you, you are going to probably shift the dynamic of how you relate to each other about death, for sure, and mortality, but possibly even in a bigger sense. You might start relating to that person with more vulnerability, um, with more open expression, with more compassion and empathy. Um, they're, they're really powerful questions and and they're not just they're not my questions um they're questions that came from ira bayak and ram das and elizabeth kubler ross and we certainly crafted some of them at death over dinner but these are the questions that have been asked at the thousands and thousands well actually now millions of tables Mm. um and so i know they work because i've watched them do the work of really unlocking what's most beautiful and most human and sacred in people um, and people that weren't even signing up for like a sacred experience. <laughs> did, did you have an aha moment where you're like, you know what? Um, since I am going to do a book, uh, I'm not going to do chapters. I, I, I'm going to do prompts because this is how I organize my suppers. I'm looking more into the book crafting with this question. Michael. Yeah, sure. Well, so I had an incredible co-writer, um, which can mean a lot of things. Um, in, in the world in these days, there's a lot of co-writers or ghostwriters um, out there, and in in many cases, the co-writer or the ghostwriter just writes the book for the known um, busy mm-hmm. person, right? And that was not the case with this book. Um, my co-writer, I hired to help me write the proposal because my agent was like, "You're spending too long, and it's not going anywhere. I need you. <laughs> the world needs this book." I need a book proposal so I can sell it. So I'm going to give you, or, you know, this Jenna Free works with me and you need to pay her and she's going to write your proposal. And so Jenna took a lot of clay and she formed it into a really crisp, beautiful proposal. And the process was so good um, working with her that I said, hey, Jenna, why don't we write this whole book together? And if it sells, I want you to come in as a partner in this project. If it sells, I'm going to give you 50%. Um, wow. And, 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 you know, and I want my, and I was like, and I want you to give me my money back for the proposal if it sells. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Jenna said, yes. She said, okay, um, we'll, we'll go into business together. Um, the book sold for a significant amount of money, um, which was a very good day for both me and Jenna. (laughs) Awesome. And so we started, we had only five months to write the book. Um, and they really wanted it into the world. And, and, and so we went at it and she made it her full-time job and I made it my part-time job. Um, and somewhere, and I don't, and I, I, and I want to give you the exact moment of when we said, the prompts or chapters, and it quite frankly might have been Jenna, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, it made so much sense um, when when we thought of it that way. Um, that and, and you know, and the editor um, from Hachette was like, you know, got it immediately, um, mm. and, and the whole thing. You know, right, people talk about writing books being so 
difficult. Um, this was an absolute joy to write. Um, every moment spent on it was pure joy until, you know, they had to launch the thing and you're dealing with the marketing department. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if I'm seeing it right, the copyright on this book right up front is 2018. I know so much work, in a sense, went in to prepare this book for years and years ahead of time, thousands of dinners, now millions of dinners, as you're mentioning, triggering a movement. How do you score the success of this book, zero to 10, where zero is utter disaster? Why did I do that? And 10 is, uh, blew me away on all accounts. I, I'm curious, like, as yeah. you think about a movement here, and you're saying, I love what you said earlier about how you're suspicious of books. I mean, there's so many books today. So is that yeah. really the most effective platform? So how do you score your efforts on dinners face-to-face, which sounds amazing, but how well does that scale versus the book that, at least for somebody like me, that's how I got hooked in versus the other efforts you're making. I'm just curious, looking over the platform as is, what are your impressions of what you've done? Yeah, well, the, the beauty of working with my publisher and editor is it, they didn't care whether it was going to be a New York Times bestseller or not. Um, they knew that this is a book that needs to be in the world um, and, that, Love it. and that it would be a perennial seller. Um, that we always will need guidance when it comes to conversations about death. Um, and there's really hardly any other book like it. Uh, Isn't that amazing? And it's true. I think it's true. I mean, I, I admit not to having read much into this area of the literature, so I, I'm quite sure. I mean, I, I studied Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in fifth grade. We were taught the, the, the stages of dying. But I mean, I, I do agree, and that's part of why I'm so excited to have you um, here in April because I feel as if this is incredibly important, runs so deep, and it's so undertreated. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that confirmation from you. I'm, I'm wondering, Michael, I mean, did you get push, pushback? Because it seems to me, it's, it sounds like you had a supportive team all the way through, but let us say there, there's some stigma around the popularity or lack thereof of a popular culture embracing this topic. So did you encounter that in, in your own desire to, to, to get this work moving and any reflections on others yeah. who may have faced movie directors or, or book publishers trying to convince them that this topic can sell. Yeah. You know, I stand on the shoulders of giants um, who paved the way and made it much easier for me to do this work. And quite literally not, not in some sort of like poetic allusion towards the people that have come before me. And I'll, and I'll tell you a story that illustrates this. So um, the the Boston Globe wanted to cover Death Over Dinner. And so I was invited to come and do a dinner. Um, what year is this, roughly? Um, it's probably 2016, I would okay. say. Okay, yep. Um, and and you know, so Death Over Dinner, um, for those who are still trying to catch up, is a, is, a, is a dinner platform that invites people to host their own dinners to talk about death. Um, it's almost like AA or something. It just, people uh-huh. do their own thing, um, organize it themselves, follow our guidelines. Um, and, and in the sense, and you know, it's not like AA from an experiential perspective, um, but in the, in the sense we use very much that model that people can create their own experiences using um, a, you know, our model and that we weren't going to control the brand of it, the, the, the how of it. And, and that's how it scales. So people have been having these for 10 years, they've been having these dinners. Um, yeah. And it, actually just to jump in for a quick sec, Michael, I think again, to your credit, you didn't try to copyright this or make this your intellectual property where people have to go through you very broadly minded from the beginning, you made it about what we all want to make of it. Right? Yeah. No, death over dinner was always designed as a gift. Um, 
I think transactionalizing things that are inherently sacred, like death, is very, very tricky. Um, it's not. It can be done, um, and it has to be done. There has to be some business. Some shekels have to change hands um, when it comes to end of life. But it has to be done very thoughtfully. And the conversations about it, um, I always wanted to be a pure gift. Um, I wanted it to be. Um, never trademarked. Um, and, and I wanted it to be abusable in a sense. Like people are like death over donuts and death over tea and death over deli. And, and, and can I use your logo? It's always like, yes. Can I change it? Sure. Um, right. The idea is the more people having this conversation and I don't know the best way I know, you know, I'm, I, I have a pretty informed perspective. Um, but nonetheless, um, getting back to pushback, um, so, so Boston Globe asked for me to come in um, and do a, a dinner. Um, and Richard Harris is the writer. Um, and Richard Harris and I have this really powerful dinner at a friend's house um, with a few amazing folks. And he ends up writing this um, incredible piece for the, the Boston Globe. And then another piece for the Atlantic, I believe. Um, and Richard is a, used to be a producer for Nightline for Ted Koppel. And so um, it was actually Richard who found the Maury Schwartz story um, for Ted Koppel. Tuesdays with Maury. Exactly. So there, but there's a bit of a backstory there, and I'll, and I'll try to keep it brief. Um, so Ted, said, Ted Koppel said to his producers, go read your local papers and find me interesting stories. And so Richard Harris brought um, Ted this idea of a professor um, from Bryn Mawr. A well-known professor, Maury Schwartz, is, is dying, and from his deathbed he wants to still – um, teach his lectures to his students. Um, and he really wants to share his end of life experience with his students. And Ted Koppel takes, loves this story, takes it to his producers at Nightline. And they say, absolutely not. Can't do it. Won't do it. Ted says, I'm going to do this story. Um, and Maury says, Ted, you can do this story, but I need to come, I need you to come to Boston and we need to spend an afternoon together first. I need to vet you, which has never happened to Ted Koppel. In his life. <laughs> you know, Princess Di was probably like, yes, sir. Maury um, <laughs> Schwartz is like, I think I need to make sure that you have the right intentions. Um, so they go and do this interview. It becomes the most watched interview of Ted Koppel's career. Most successful, um, you know, show. Wow. Of, yep most successful show of the year. Um, and then this sports writer, Mitch Album, um, watches Nightline. And he's like, that's my professor. And so he goes, um, and, you know, he's like, I need to get back in touch with him. Um, hadn't talked to him in years. And he goes and visits Maury and wants to write down Maury's wisdom just to share with the family. It wasn't for a book. It was just to share with the family. Ended up being this extraordinary compilation obviously of wisdom and stories um and then he went to try to get it published he got like 85 no's or some absurd you know uh <laughs> thing like that and so everybody said no to mitch he spent years trying to get it published got it published it is the most printed biography of all time <whistles> yeah and i mean you find it with when breath becomes air you find it with a fault in our stars like there's so many instances where the people that are trying to control the content or you know decide what content we should see are so terrified like middle managers um that people can't actually take the real honest so ironic so yeah. ironic so so needless to say 
we wrote the proposal ultimately in two months, um, sent it out, started a bidding war um, two weeks later, had an incredible deal with Hachette within three days after that, published, you know, finished the book in five months, came out a year after I sold it, has been, you know, um, republished in something like 12 languages. It's in Russia, it's in China, it's in Romania, it's in Poland. Became mm. <laughs> became huge in Poland, um, mm-hmm. like the cover of Newsweek in Poland. It's my only. It's my only <laughs> magazine cover. <laughs> any, any idea? Any idea why specifically Poland? I think the people of Poland have been through um, an incredible amount of hardship, um, mm. and and they don't need to sugarcoat the world. And so when someone's coming to them and say, "Let's have a straight conversation about." The thing that's common to all of us, there's kind of a big yes, please. Um, wow, yeah. Let, let's shift to dinner because that's that's sure. a really important part of the platform, the movement, and the book. But Michael, before we do zero to ten on your feelings about the book and its success at this point, oh, um, let's give it a eight. Um, and the only the two that are remaining on the table. Yep. Are the fact that I'm terrible at self promotion, <laughs> um, and and I, I'm so I, sorry to hear that. <laughs> um, I, I really, I mean, like if tragic if, flaw. <laughs> no, no. I, the the reality is the majority of the things that I build don't benefit from having a charismatic leader hmm. um, at the front of it. Um, you know, if you go to death over dinner, you'll be hard pressed to find information about me on that site. Um, there, it, it's there buried in there somewhere and you find it here and there. Um, but, and, and there isn't an Instagram you can follow. There isn't a Twitter Michael Hebb you can follow. Mm. Um, and, and, and the reality is that actually really helps a project like death over dinner. It's not authored. It's, it is, uh, shared. It's shared and it people feel like it's theirs. And that's way more interesting to me as a way of building things in the world. Um and and it's you know, it's it's not because I'm shy. Um it's not because I have low self esteem or something like that. Like I'm quite confident. <laughs> um but it, it's about what serves the the project. Um mm. and so and I I've never built projects that are, you know, well, maybe in my early twenties, but all about me. And then all of a sudden a book comes along and there is an author. It is all about you. And they're like, Hey, ask your fancy friends to promote it for you. And (laughs) like, you know, play the game and get it out there. And, and, and I, and I didn't, um, and I couldn't, I have an allergic reaction to it. Um, Hmm. And so I think that we probably could have three X star sales and I could have been in a very good position to sell the next book for more money. And the reality is I'll probably get less money for the next book and that's okay. Um, it sold very well, but it, you know, it'll be a long time before they pay off that, <laughs> that initial chunk. <laughs> well, that means you have a good agent and I know that you do, but I, I will say this is, this is to me, this is a, an evergreen. This is a, this is going to sell every year and I wouldn't be surprised if it sells more copies in future than it does in the, in these years. And that's all entirely to your credit, Michael. And, and so thank you for sharing those reflections on the book and just the book as part of 
part of a movement or something greater, a, a platform, if you will. Uh, I think a lot of us are probably, I hope, nodding our heads right now, convinced, I hope, of the value of these conversations and, and of this work. So now we hit the dinner part. Sure. So first, first, why dinner? Yeah. So um, dinners have always shaped history. Um, the the dinner table is like this. There could almost be like a Da Vinci Code book about it. It it's the it's the secret engine of culture. Um, it's the smoky back room if you want to look at it from a trickle down model. Um, it's the the seder um, or maybe even the tea party gatherings, dependent upon your politics. Um, the <laughs> idea of small groups of people coming together to share ideas um, and is in a, is how the world works. Um, the media is trying to catch up with what happens at these small tables. Um, you know, mass culture is trying to put their finger on what happens in the intimate small um, experiences that Fun. humans have. Um, and, you know, we can look through the history of the table and the Greek symposiums being the kind of, you know, proto um, table, the, the, the most point. impactful tables. Um, and these were dinner parties um, where through the exchange of ideas, we got things like democracy, um, our judicial system, theater, <laughs> you know, like just a few uh, cornerstones of Western civilization. Um, and, and those weren't things that came from the Senate floor of Athens. They came from the intimate experiences over the table. Um, and, and, and there's a long lineage. Um, the Bloomsbury Group, you have... Keynesian economics being formed at the same time as Virginia Woolf, um, you know, really exploring her her voice and her craft. That they're at their, you know, they roasted a chicken once a month, um, hmm. and and had these conversations. The Lunar Men came together once a month. Gertrude Stein kickstarted modernism and Cubism at her tables. Like so, you know, and I could. I could literally spend 12 hours telling you about the secret history of the table and how it shaped culture. But I've, I've been very, very fascinated by it um, since I um, started as a classicist, moved into architecture and started okay. creating experiences for people in community gathering places and saw the deep yearning need that people have to gather meaningfully. There are so many instances of how, the table and coming together to share ideas have, you know, shaped who we are. Mm. And just, and thinking of um, at least um, our family table growing up, just that time with the kids, that precious time. I mean, how many families in all ways, shapes, forms, sizes have made so much of just, that's a big part of family culture, uh, not just in the U S but many places around the world. So, okay. I, I get, I am, I am, a hundred percent persuaded. I mean, now in in retrospect, what a naive question I asked when I said first, no. why dinner? <laughs> no, it makes Truly. perfect sense. We we're we're not uh, we're not table literate as a culture. We're also not death literate. We don't huh. look at the table and see, oh, look at this magnificent place of human connection and potentiality. Mm. You know, um, we see a kind of chore. <laughs> 
So well put. So so okay, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna change my second question then. That was the why. Let's go with the how. So okay, next, how death over dinner, how does this actually work? <laughs> yeah, well, I I spent a lot of time bringing people together around the table. Um, first and foremost, um, there's about 15 years of experiences before creating death over dinner. Um, and, and these are pretty intense experiences. These are bringing together presidents, They're bringing together president Kagame and, um, president Mary Robinson, um, Kagame from Rwanda, Mary Robinson from Ireland to talk about ending genocide as just one example. Um, or hosting the first night of Obama's um, first Obama Foundation summit dinner for 500 people with um, you know President Obama and Michelle Obama and um, Prince Harry as my um, my co-hosts. <laughs> so, mm. like we're we're talking about high stakes. Um, how do you gatherings? Make, yeah. How do you how do you make it work for a very difficult audience? Um, uh, and sometimes very jaded, but a but a very powerful audience, um, and and that's where I cut my teeth um, and learned how to make sure that the table for every person um, would actually be a place of safety, a place of vulnerability, a place to talk about the things that matter most, um, and and so landed on. Well, these are fancy dinners that I get to do, but how do I democratize this, mm-hmm. um, and how do I create a toolkit? where people are inspired um, to have their own dinners. And, and the way that it works, when somebody is hosting a death dinner, um, they, they go to the website, say, this is why I want to host a dinner. And I know you're not good at self-promotion, so let me make it really clear, deathoverdinner.org. <laughs> I probably should have mentioned that earlier, but yeah, of course, people will Google it and find it anyway, but that is, that is the website you're talking about. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, very, it's a very simple, easy-to-use, pretty website. And the idea is you identify why you want to have one of these dinners. Big. Yeah. Um, so, and it may be that someone you love or you yourself has um, received a terminal diagnosis. It may be that you're grieving. It may be that you're just human and you want to talk about it. Um, or a young family. There's a lot of different um, what we call intentions for having these um, conversations. Once you select that, the website um, generates a script for you. Um, hmm. and, and you put in your email and it emails you the script and the script gives you everything. It's almost like a board game. You now don't have to worry about, um, you know, the, how am I going to have this conversation? And so it leads you through, um, a couple of exercises. Um, the first one, which every dinner starts with is lighting a candle for somebody who's died that had a positive, powerful impact on your life. Um, and this is, this is a very, very old um, ritual. Um, it's honoring your ancestor, um, your ancestors. It is really creating a space that is safe and larger than just you. It actually turns off your ego a little bit when you start thinking about people <laughs> that um, came before you and you stop rehearsing your answers, right? It's a very tricky, thoughtful little ritual that is part of a lot of sacred um, rituals throughout time and a lot of, um, you know, secular rituals as well. Um, And so it starts there and that really opens people up and it becomes a beautiful experience at that moment because people give very short, beautiful eulogies. And then you um, 
go through a few prompts based upon your intention. And the prompts are different based upon why you decided to have the dinner. And they start at the, you know, shallow end of the pool and they go closer to the deep end and they ask questions like the ones that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, it may start with what is, what would you want as your last meal? Like something, a, a question you've heard before, uh, what's on your bucket list still um, and why? Um, and and then into something like, yeah, you've just found out you only have an hour to live. Who are you going to call and what are you going to tell them? Um, and that's a question we use when we really want to open people up emotionally. Mm. Um, and then it closes after you've done um, some of this exploration. Um, and there's usually a, uh, let me just say that there's usually a question that's a little bit more practical, like what happens to your body um, when you die? Um, and, you know, or what do you want your legacy to be? What do you, how do you want to be remembered? Um, those are, those are bits that are really important for your family, friends, um, and even strangers to hear, because what you're doing is practicing talking about it, even if you'll never see those people again. Well said. Um, and then it closes with gratitude. Um, we have, it's called an appreciation in the round and we have everyone say something that they appreciate or admire about the person on their left. Um, and this is closing up that space. Um, it's, it's giving you a flush of, um, of positive, um, you know, uh, brain chemicals like oxytocin, et cetera. You're being appreciated. It, it is almost like stepping out of that, um, you know, that death talking area into the rest of the world that's not talking about death. And so (laughs) the dessert is an appreciation and, and, and that's it. It is, I mean, I often feel like we're selling water. Um, and the thing is we're not selling it, so it's okay. Um, but it's a very, very simple architecture and the reality is it always yields beautiful results. I mean, we've had like this is the Yelp culture, right? When somebody doesn't like what you're offering free or otherwise, they tell you about it. (laughs) We need more of that straight talk. And that's what you're contributing to. And I appreciate that. I think I'd be remiss, Michael, if with the author of let's talk about death over dinner, the co-author, if I had him and I didn't ask, because I'm looking at the site right now and the site is very helpful. I can see how it talks me through whoever I am. What what my purpose is for the gathering it reminds me of Priya Parker, her wonderful book, The Art of Gathering, which I hope you've seen. I expect. You oh, I know Priya. Yeah, probably have. Yeah, Priya. Yeah, I, I would think so. And there's a um, that was certainly one of my favorite interviews a few years ago, realizing just the importance of human gathering. And there's a lot of crossover between this podcast and our talk with you and that talk with Priya. So I see that. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for some of the some of the do's and don'ts. Um, just mm. a couple of pointers. Uh, in fact. It's always more fun. Let's let's start with the don'ts. Yeah, of course. You, well, you don't surprise people with this conversation. Um, you don't, you know, I think I've said before, but it's not like pizza night surprise. We're actually talking about <laughs> death, kids. Um, there can be, uh. there's some, some, you know, people who evangelize or, uh, are, are new to this topic or terrain and they get so excited. They think that everybody wants to talk about um, this topic in every situation. And that's not the case. Yeah. Um, you really want to opt in. Um, you want people to opt in. It's not a good thing to do with Thanksgiving. People are like, I- I'm going to, I'm going to make this our Thanksgiving dinner. And I'm like, don't, don't do that. Yeah. Like, you know, talk about football or talk about what, you know, talk about <laughs> politics. Don't. Yeah. I mean, 
make Thanksgiving as good as it possibly can be. Don't add extra stress to it. It's already hard mm. to be among our family mm. um, for some of us. Um, and, you know, so that's a big don't. Like you really want to invite people and have them say, yeah, I'm prepared for that. And it's totally okay if they're not. Um, there's lots of different ways to come to this topic, to build um, a deeper comfort, to make some decisions. And having a dinner party and talking about it um, is certainly not the only or maybe even the best way. Um, yep. it's, it's just an effective way. Um, so that's a don't. Um, don't give advice. Um, it, it, this, is a, this is an experience meant for people to make I statements, statements about themselves, not to reach over and therapize or give unsolicited advice um, to a family member or a friend about what they should or shouldn't do. There are no experts in death. There are no experts. Um, and so it's really about your own personal experience. Um, and so I, I think those are some of the big don'ts. Also, you know, don't cook a, a attempted Michelin one-star dinner. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't decide this is the moment that you become Thomas Keller. <laughs> Ridiculous. You're already stressed out. Come on, be honest. Like, you're already talking about a topic you're uncomfortable with. Like, take the dish that makes you or, – or order something in, you know, or just do it on Zoom and have a glass of wine. It doesn't actually require a full dinner. Um, but definitely don't stress yourself over the preparations of the meal. Make sure that you're as little – you're exhibiting and experiencing as little stress as a host as possible because the thing is stress is super contagious. And if you are the host, you, people are looking to you. They're looking to you to what kind of – how are we doing this? What is this experience like? So true. So, yeah. there's. I mean, those are a few don'ts. Or, um, the do's. Yeah, a couple I, – I love the don'ts. And I'm yeah. sure we could go longer because it's such a compelling – um, first of all, experience in the first place, and we we don't want to do it wrong. I especially took away from your book, never force anybody into it. Don't say yeah. we all have to do this as a family. Truly, it's opt-in. Um, but yeah, how about a couple do's? Yeah, well, I mean, to that point of opt-in, I think of it like courtship or looking for a job. Um, when somebody says no, hear them, but also realize that, you know, maybe change your 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 mechanism. If you're, if you're courting somebody, you get creative. You want them to know you're thinking about them, not just thinking about yourself, right? So you think about, well, what would be a good access point for this person that I love? Um, you know, and so, you know, are they interested in sports? Well, let's look at a, you know, a, a, a sports hero who died well, or a sports hero who didn't die well. And let's talk about that or music, et cetera. So really think about your audience and who you're courting, who you're inviting, who you're enticing to dinner. Um, and be thoughtful and respectful. Um, the most important thing I can say as a do, as somebody who's hosted thousands of dinners and you might think they become rote or they might become the same or boring or um, I've heard it all before. There's a trick that I use that I think is important trick for anybody hosting. Um, and that's I always take a inventory and find out something I'm afraid to say. Like within these questions, because within these, these questions touch every part of human experience. You will find something that you have some resistance to that you don't want to share because it might be too vulnerable. It might make you look bad. It might, you know, cause judgment, et cetera. 
Now, if I do that quick indexing and say, oh, I don't want to talk about that tonight, um, today, but do it anyway, move through my own resistance and talk about something that makes me feel a bit raw and vulnerable um, mm. and step over my resistance, what, what will happen is magic. Quite, quite literally, you will see other people do the same thing. And you will go places you've never gone in conversation with them. Um, you maybe have never gone in conversation with other human beings in a good way. Um, and and, and you, you have given permission to people to be vulnerable and to step over the thing. And, the, the, you know, step over the thing that they're resisting. And people don't – this word vulnerability is one of those squishy words like community. Like what does it actually mean? And that's what it means. It means that you – acknowledge that you're afraid to say something and then you say it anyway. Um, you step over that block. and It and- is easy to say as you're saying, I know it's hard to do. It's so admirable to do and I think to to feel pulled through it by that prospect of magic, that's that's the kind of draw that we need to be reminded of and, and to remember. And And truly, this is such a human endeavor. Um, We live and we die as humans. We share tables together as humans. We share our minds. We share love and empathy, I hope, as as humans. So, So I hope that emboldens our dear listeners listening to us right now to think that it is worth doing. And I do think vulnerability is one of those words that we can all agree on is important, but it means a thousand different things and it's not that easy. And sometimes it can be threadbare. But truly, what you've described is authentically vulnerable and obviously powerful. Well, and here's the other thing. That's the like harder enticement for doing this, because I'm asking you to do something that is uncomfortable. The, the more shiny enticement for having these conversations is that you are going to feel more alive. Um, there is an immediate hit of authentic vitality. Um, that happens when you have these conversations. There is an immediate clarification um, or re-clarification about what matters most to you and what you should prioritize. There is an absolute access to more connection with the people you care about most. You will see your family and friends in a whole new light and in a beautiful light, quite frankly. Like, so it that's the only reason that a mil- over now a million people have taken part, not because of our big splashy advertising campaign or because Richard Branson is, you know, um, talking about death over dinner or blah, 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 any of those things. We have none of that. We only have the fact that it is such a powerful experience for so many people that they share about it and they, and they invite more people to the table and they have the experience again in some cases. That's that has been the only reason it has reached the, um, the the numbers it has. It's reminding me of another beautiful quote from your book. This is much closer toward the end, but Leslie Hazelton, who I was not previously familiar with, but uh, a number of our listeners will be, and you certainly are, because she is an incredibly eloquent, um, straight-talking proponent of this work and of recognizing our mortality, which kind of defines us. Anyway, here's the quote. Um, later in your book from Leslie, she says, we need endings because the most basic ending of all is built into us. My mortality does not negate meaning. It creates meaning. It's not how long I live that matters. It's how I live. And I intend to do it well to the end 
Leslie concludes, we are finite beings within infinity. Yeah, and she does live well, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely need to Google her and read more about her because I can already see I'd be a fan, and clearly you are too. You know, at, at the top of the show this week, Michael, I said some weeks back I had Dan Pink on this podcast. Dan was advising all of us on looking backward and embracing our regrets and analyzing them to live better forward. In a lot of ways, I feel like I feel like you're doing the same, but from the opposite direction. So, Michael, you are you are advising all of us to look forward and acknowledge our mortality because in so doing, we can live better forward. So all this talk about regrets and death, and yet I feel like you guys are helping captain the live better forward movement. Yeah. And also it's about being present. Like that's one of those other elusive words, um, be more present. You know, how do I do that? Does that mean that I, you know, download headspace or, um, or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, try to meditate? Um, sure. That's, that's a way, but thinking about your impermanence, like really reflecting on the fact that this is finite, um, that'll get you present. And and I don't even know if that's forward thinking. That's just the forever truth of the now. Mm. Um, And so you want to be, if you want to feel embodied, clear-eyed, in your person, feeling what you're feeling, it's a pretty it's a pretty solid very ancient always been there in every wisdom tradition way of doing it it's in every religion it's in every philosophy um thinking about our mortality might the fact that we don't do it might be one of the reasons why we're so depressed might be one of the reasons why we buy things we don't need and we have such a consumerist society there's a lot of mites mm. Um, and I'm not going to say well, it's the cure-all, cure-all for everything, but it has some benefits. <laughs> it, it it sure does, and I've so enjoyed this conversation together, Michael. Um, as we move toward close here, I was asking myself the question, who does it right? And and the, the Jews have some long-running experience with this, and so I'm wondering if you can explain their approach with Shiva. Shiva is one of several different rituals that is part of a traditional Jewish um, end of life. Um, you know, one is that there's always somebody with the body. Um, there's a very human experience of being with the hmm. body um, after it's died, as opposed to, you know, um, you know, and somebody who cares about that person. It's called a shomer. Um, there's the fact that at the burial, the family is in, invited to throw um, the first dirt onto the casket. And that is also a very, like, you know, um, mm. in, strong encounter with the fact that the person is is no longer here. It's very visceral. It's very human. Um, the carrying of the casket. There's a lot of things that are part of Jewish traditions and other traditions that are about us waking up to the reality that something very major has happened, that a person is gone um, or a person is dead. Gone is another question. Um, Shiva where people spend seven days traditionally. There's a modern version of Shiva that's much shorter. Okay. (laughs) But traditionally Shiva is seven days where the family um, is in their home, um, family who's lost um, a loved one is in their home. Food is brought to them by their community. And the family is 
not supposed to do anything other than be in conversation with friends and family to reflect on, remember that person. It's like a very long Irish wake with less whiskey. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's delightful. And, and you know, and again, I, I don't have personal experience with this, but I, I always love learning from as many different cultures and traditions as possible. So this was, I, I certainly have heard about it from my Jewish friends, but, but you, you broke it down. And one way you characterized it, Michael, is in this way, and I'm quoting you, Shiva, gives an answer to that most unhelpful of questions, what can I do to help? Which is a very natural human question a lot of us feel. But you wrote, Shiva tells you, you show up, you bring food, you wait for them to speak, and then you follow their lead, end quote. Yeah. No, and and then there's, you know, in a traditional Shiva, and this is, again, done less often these days, but I think it's a really important part, um, the rabbi will often take the family on a walk around the the neighborhood and back to their house, sometimes making a lot of noise um, and banging things, et cetera, a kind of almost like the second hmm. line of a New Orleans um, uh, you know, funeral <laughs> profession, uh, procession. You're bringing them back to the living. You're bringing the family back from a period where they were just focused on the death of a loved one. And it's not to say they won't be mourning. Of course they'll be mourning, but they, but they are mourning as the living. And so, you know, these are rituals are, we talk a lot about, you know, um, smart design, um, you know, and human, um, human focused design, um, you know, and IDEO and these, you bet. I love that stuff. Design thinking, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, rituals are, examples of the best design thinking ever created um and much better than you're going to get in your boardroom um and so and take them seriously take them seriously they're very wise truly human-centered design so in conclusion michael you have now by your own count done thousands of these conversations personally million plus have happened that you've touched off um special question for you to conclude would you do would you do one more? Next week on this <laughs> podcast, would it be okay if I convened a few friends and in order to help my listeners understand what this sounds like, I'm sure a lot of us are curious if we haven't done it before, and what it feels like and and maybe to be inspired to try it on their own. Michael Hebb, would you con- kindly consent to a death over dinner, dinner podcast on Rule Breaker Investing next week? I, I, I can't think of anything better. So that's a yes. <laughs> that is that is awesome, and I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, one of the things I love about this podcast is about a quarter of our listeners are outside the United States of America. So while it's natural in our Western world with our Western minds to be thinking about um, all the things we do poorly around this and some of the things we do well, I'm also reminded of the math of how many people we have just reached in how many different cultures and you know, if we all just do it a little bit better tomorrow in whatever context that makes sense, maybe we just save some money, maybe we have an extra conversation, or maybe like next week, we get inspired to have one of these ourselves. Um, I am I am feeling, Michael, I think what you have done innumerable times, I'm a small part of something I hope that is con- contributing to a greater good. So I want to thank you, first of all, for your book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, Uh, I want to thank you for your time this week. I want to thank you for all that you've done for many of our fellow humans at all. I think that you're going to continue to going forward, including 
on next week's podcast. So Michael, fool on my friend and have a great week. Uh, Thanks for having me. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.